for the for the live streaming, whoever's filming the live streaming, it would be awesome if you just took the camera mostly off me and did the slides. Um, they'll make more sense than looking at me. So imagine that you are at a dinner party and that um, you and your friends, who all look a lot like stock photography models, you're having a discussion and somebody says this. Now imagine, you know, what do they do? Well, they might do that, but you can imagine what they're actually thinking in their little thought bubbles. And then this question comes up and he says, now imagine what the reaction is to that. Right, and, and everyone's okay with the fact that that's a bizarre idea. So think about what people's responses might be to that. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. <laughs> so once they get past that, then it's like, okay, then we're gonna give you all of the advice for everything that you're gonna to need to do, because if you're gonna have a business that's gonna be successful, here's the stuff you have to do, right? And it's gonna go on and on and on and on and on. Because, oh, Facebook marketing, Twitter marketing strategies, because we're in the engagement economy, and it's also the thank you economy, and it's the experience economy, and it's the creative economy, and oh my God, how can you not have a Pinterest strategy? But that's okay, because there are ways to work on your Pinfluence. And it's the attention economy, which Wikipedia feels is a little bit suspicious, but there's a book, so it's obviously a thing. And not to be confused with the intention economy, where customers take charge. Female economy, go us, has only two comments, so that's kind of sad. And then there's the virtual economy, also known as the synthetic economy, the knowledge economy, the like economy, one of my favorites is the pet economy. And then we also have the sushi economy, which by the way, Google this, but not right now, this is a real thing, the sushi economy. So you might as well have your own economy, and oh, look at that, there is the you economy. And then just when you thought it was completely safe to let go of this, Facebook is back, thanks to Justin Timberlake, I'm bringing sexy back. And not everyone is enamored, and this just happened, right, just a few days ago. Not everyone's excited about it. TechCrunch apparently is not excited about and the four most intelligent words I have ever actually read on TechCrunch is this. Just let it go. Just let it go, just take that deep breath again. Because competing on these issues, it's very fragile, not to mention exhausting. So this is not, this is not a sustainable, successful, happy path. So we're gonna just take a little step back to look at how we got into this, and hopefully we can find better alternatives. So everyone starts out with this, some variation of this. We want our product to be desirable. I mean, not just desirable in, wow, I would love to have that, but desirable enough to, that I'm actually gonna get it. So we have to have something that's so desirable that people really want to have it. So this was the goal, and of course you have to be more desirable than everyone else in your category. But it can't just be desirable as a fad, right? We want it to be sustainably desirable. We want it to last. We don't want people to just say, oh my God, I have to have this, and then they're over it. We want them to really continue to want it successfully over a period of years. Now, what's happened recently, which is really, I think, the worst possible answer to this question, and there's science that backs up why it's such a bad answer to the question, is that now people are coming up with desirability engines, desirability platforms, engagement platforms, behavioral economics. This is a horrible trend, because it's based on this myth, first of all, that this is what everyone wants to do, that on their deathbed, people are like, only I had engaged more with brands. But this is not our problem. We do not have an engagement problem. So engagement platforms are not the answer in most cases. There are very few cases where it actually really applies. That's not the answer. It's not engagement that's our problem, and in fact, trying to get people more engaged with the brand actually causes harm to the brand over the long term, in most cases. Now, I'm not gonna go very far on this because we're gonna switch to a more positive topic, but this is just so crucial right now because gamification, which is the big topic, 
has a very few, very few narrow slice plays where it's awesome. The rest of the time, it's harmful. Gamification is today, and I'm not talking about actual games. Gamification is based on operant conditioning, which how many psych majors or people remember their psych class, B.F. Skinner. Now, this is not just a metaphor either. We're not just treating customers like rats or as if they were rats in a Skinner box. It's actually the very same science. We're used, that dopamine is now the hot chemical that everyone's talking about, which is insane because it's also the thing that's responsible for slot machines and cocaine. So it's, it's not that it doesn't drive behavior, but it's not the behavior that you want for sustainable business. And, then, and, and now you're seeing it linked to things like loyalty programs, which is also, some of you may know, a word I think is really bizarre, because that is not loyalty. So what we call loyalty is just bribery and incentivizing. And I, I like my little, you know, buy nine cups of coffee and get the tenth one free. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Just don't confuse it with loyalty. And those of you may remember the, on the, the loyalty picture here, is, that's the tsunami dog, the, the video of the dog that wouldn't leave his other little friend behind. So this is important to remember. Loyalty is not necessarily our goal. Because it's just not true. This isn't going to happen. Now we're going to look at ways to do something that's um, not just as good as we can get, but in some ways even better. So we have to find a way to have this sustained desirability without bribing, without incentivizing, without coercing, which in the end would end up doing more damage. So what does make something really, truly, truly desirable in a sustainable way? What are those key attributes? Well, we kind of all know instinctively that even if we're trying to say best quality wins, we all know this is generally not true. Right, because the world is full of great product in cell. Things that are beautifully crafted. They're clearly the superior product, but they didn't sell. So we know that, first of all, our definition of quality doesn't even make sense because only the user can decide what quality actually means. But we also know that this is true, that if something is really desirable, it, the, some of the things that you use and love every day, that people would have to pry out of your hands, right, you will tolerate a lot of crap for those things. And we're going to look at the reasons why you would be willing to tolerate that and how to build that. Now, of course, if there's only one source, then yes, people will tolerate crap because they have to. But that's not what we're talking about. Now, the more interesting thing is that when something is really, really, really desirable, people will actually reinterpret the crap as not crap. Because, you know, iOS 6 maps, right? Like your first version of anything was good. So, um, you know, people are willing to reinterpret things. So if it's not quality, then what does drive desirability? What makes this happen? Why does he say that? Now, this is the thing that we want, because this is what we know is true. So word of mouth is more powerful today than it ever has been. 70% of people. Um, trust online customer reviews up 15%, blah, blah, blah. So we know that this is happening. Trust in ads, trust in online recommendations, and offline as well is going up. So for something to be really desirable, we, and, and for us to have users who actually want, or potential users want to get it, we need other users telling potential users, you need to get this. This is our goal. We need to make this happen. So if, if word of mouth today is really driving this sustained desirability, you know, one user telling another prospective user, you have to have this, well then what drives that? What makes that happen? What makes him say this? This is what we have to look at. Why did he do that? But this is tricky because everybody's sort of competing on this. They want people to talk about the product is awesome or the company is awesome or the service is awesome. So they're trying to be talked about as awesome, and it makes the world's saddest Venn diagram. Now, that overlap, it really is tiny if that is your goal. If your goal is to be perceived as awesome, as opposed to the user's goal is to be awesome. Now, a lot of times people look at this and go, no, aren't, isn't there a much bigger overlap? Aren't those really you know, the same? But you know that they're not. Because when we are trying to make the most awesome product that people will view as awesome, we are often making really different choices in product design, in features, in marketing, everything that we do. If we're trying to be perceived as awesome, that's very different choices than focusing just on what the user is going to be able to do.
So we have to think about the choices that we're making. So we want to compete on user awesome, not app awesome. Because having the users view us as awesome is the natural side effect when we're doing the right things. Trying to make it happen usually gives us the opposite effect. This is where the power is. This is the side effect that we want. We can't get there directly. We can't get there by trying to make people talk about it. Well, you can. It's called spam your friends. But so the key attributes of a successful app, if we are going to reverse engineer a really successful, long-term, sustainable, desirable thing, we shouldn't be looking at the thing. Because the key attributes live in the user, not in the thing. So we have to look at what makes those users successful that drives them to talk to other people. So desirability is really about a user getting results. Now, competing on our awesomeness, again, very fragile place to be. So we don't want to be there. We want something much more robust. And this is one more way to think about this. And, and in a second, you'll see a little story about this. So imagine that the bar is set for, and, and when I say app, you can imagine product, service, whatever but I'm just going to use app because it has fewer characters. So app, and there's alliteration, app awesome. The bar is fairly high for people trying to compete. And it might be not so high in your particular domain. But the, the, the bar is set pretty high. So if you're competing on that, unless you actually are you know, much higher than the most awesome thing, then it's a noisy, bloody, place to be competing. And that's where all those other things become important, all your different strategies and marketing strategies and your influence and everything else. So there's blue sky, or some of you may be familiar with the concept of the blue ocean strategy, up there at the top, right? There's breathing room up there. But then you have to be more awesome than all the competition and make sure that everyone knows it. On the other hand, this bar is ridiculously low we can just waltz right in because the bar is so low. And I, I hope that that you know, keeps changing. But right now, it's still shockingly low. So there's a lot of blue sky there because people are competing on being perceived as awesome instead of making the user awesome. And in fact, um, that's what Bert and I looked at. When we went to do our first Java book, we were like, oh, God, there's 2,000 of them on the market. And we knew we are not that good. We can't possibly be the most awesome book. This is right after the dot-com crash, and we had lost our jobs, and we're probably not going to ever get them back. And O'Reilly said, oh, and by the way, if you actually want to make money, if you actually want to live on book royalties, you have to be either number one or number two in sales. And we're like, oh, sure, how hard can that be? Um, and, and by the way, no marketing, and no one's heard of you. So we said, well, this bar is really low. That's a bar that we can easily get over, and there's all this breathing room. And for us, it was really successful. Because again, the important point, is, so we've sold 2 million um, physical books. That doesn't include um, any of the, you know, the licensing royalties or any of the digital stuff, which is also huge. The important point is not that we sold 2 million. It's that we're not actually really good, very good. But we were certainly better than the competition on making our readers a bigger group of people more awesome. So that's the place to play. It's not luck. Um, it made, people thought it was like the first time, but then we did it over and over again to just show, no, trust me, you can still suck on some things and actually have a really successful product if you are focusing completely on the user. So it's not about quality. It's not about marketing. It's about user awesome. This is the place that we want to be. And you will make different choices if you try to compete on that. So it's not about allowing you to be crappy. It's about focusing your resources on something that's more significant than all those slides I showed in the very beginning that people are trying to get people to talk about them. This is where people's lives get better. And this is what causes them to have those conversations with everybody else that we want them to have. So compete on user awesome versus app awesome. Now, some of you may know I used to say awesome, or users kicking ass, or users passionate. I don't really tend to use those words anymore, because it's very easy to misinterpret that as yet another, you know, oh, um, we made the, the customer feel good, or he likes us. Right? It's too easy to focus back on the company again. This isn't about focusing on what the user thinks of you. It's what the user is able to do and to be, actually become badass. The other reason you'll see in a moment that I talk about badass is because there actually is a science around being badass. And I would much prefer to have something where we have actual science. Um, so tr they don't 
call the science badass, but we'll talk about it. So true sustained desirability means the user is actually badass. So this is what we want to compete on. The user being badass. This is the fundamental way to think about this. People aren't using your app because they like the app or because they like you. They're doing it because they like themselves. What are you doing to enable more of that? And no matter what anybody says, everyone wants this. So this is the, one of the most powerful experiences that we can give people. And this is the other way to think about this. Now that we know recommendations are driving everything, they tell their friends not because they like you, but because they like their friends. So think about how this is making you um, choose decisions. So what we want is really robust, fault-tolerant users. We're never going to be the best. We're never going to not make mistakes. Remember, we would love it if people would reinterpret crap as not crap, because it's going to happen. And sometimes it's going to happen, uh, I don't want to say by design, but sometimes you're going to say, you know what, we are going to throw all our resources over here to helping the user. And that means some of these other things that some users may care about are just going to have to, uh, we're just going to have to let those go. And that's OK. Because we're helping them become badass, they are willing to overlook that or even reinterpret it. And it's not luck. Now, Alan Kay, who really is one of the greatest computer scientists and, and thinkers of our time, and he has this quote, which people debate endlessly what he really means, and even when he talks about it, um, it's not always clear, but it's this idea that your perspective, the way that you view something, the way that you come at a problem is worth 80 IQ points. So it's also worth um, a lot of marketing budgets and social media strategies and VC money to be able to think this way instead of think about um, designing so that people will consider that you're badass. So of course, we have to look at how to do that. And the first thing is to make sure that you're not thinking of as a pseudo badass. So pseudo badass is this, right? So Tim Ferriss, I mean, whether you like him or not, or whether you like his work or not, um, He's incredibly successful in a sustainable way. And every day, every day, hundreds of people on the internet are posting or telling their friends, oh my god, I just lost 10 pounds. Oh my god, I'm stronger than I have ever been in my entire life. He's making people actually quite literally more badass. But um, most gamification, not badass. Um, <laughs> It doesn't mean it's always bad. And in fact, the one place where gamification actually is really pretty awesome is when you're trying to get people to do something that they just hate doing but want to do, like work out. Um, customer service is another place where we can get really hung up on thinking that we're doing good things for the user, but we're not helping them be badass. So it's not that customer service isn't important. Gratuitous puppy picture. Um, this is what customer service is supposed to be about. It's about enabling badass. If it's not working toward that end, if you're trying to compete on customer service, you're still in a fragile place, unless your business really is service. But that's a separate category. And for most people, that isn't their business. So this is what we're going to do. This is grammatically wrong on so many levels, but I just couldn't figure out how to say it. So, but badass at what? So if you saw my previous talk at this conference, um, or you're probably familiar with uh, this idea that I'm going to talk about in just a second, but we have to get this out of the way. Because I still will always have people go, OK, badass, I don't make something where there's any badass. right? We just make this little utility. And in fact, the point is that you shouldn't have to master it. It should just be so natural that we've solved the problem, which is great. But if you think that your tool has no purpose other than to just immediately get out of people's way, and, and there's nothing to be badass at, well, what is your tool for? What is it enabling? It's enabling something bigger. So you can always ask, what does having that solution that we provide, what does that give them? There's always something to be badass about. Because they're not, it, no matter how big or small your tool is, the goal is never to be badass at your tool. There are very few exceptions to that. Right? He doesn't necessarily want to be awesome at that app. He wants to be a filmmaker. So this is the little uh, superset game. This is what helps you figure out what people could become badass at around your tool, if, uh, especially if your tool is a very small utility. So this is you. This is a competitor. Or you can reverse those, because remember, that's not what matters. What matters is this, the bigger, cooler thing. And this sphere could grow and grow and grow. 
So, and this could be many things. It's what are you both a subset of? What is the bigger, meaningful context that people are or can be excited about? And you, bless you, and you might have many. So this is what people want to be badass at, not your tool. They want to be badass at that thing. So they don't want to be really badass at Final Cut Pro. They want to be badass at making killer videos, unless they happen to be a Final Cut Pro consultant, in which case they're really screwed today because Final Cut Pro X is like 10,000 times easier to use than the previous one. Yes, it lost some capability, but it suddenly enabled a huge group of people who were struggling with the horrible mess that was the old one. So nobody wants to be an expert at your online ingredient shop or a recipe app, right? They want to cook. They want to be a prediction forecaster and business modeler, not a spreadsheet guru, not a pivot table guru. Hosting world-class conferences, that's the bigger context. Now, there can be many bigger contexts, but it's important to figure out what it is. This slide I always show because I'm pretty much going to spend the rest of my life showing this slide because I think it's the one that represents everything that's wrong with how we think about things. How we treat people before they give us money and then how we treat them after they give us money, which kind of is backwards. But the important thing about this slide, and again, I apologize for those of you who've seen it. No, I don't because it's, it's important. Um, it's not that the before they buy, it's all slick and glossy and sexy, and then afterwards, it's low production value. That's not what matters. What matters is that before they buy, we get it. The marketers get it that it's about what the person wants to do, not the thing, that that's just a tool, it's just an enabler. So they focus the marketing on the thing people want to do. And then the minute you actually get the tool, it's just about the tool. And there's nothing to help you actually really get awesome at the thing. So you make this huge promise about being cool at the thing, and then we just completely lose our minds once they actually give us money. Um, and this is true even for companies that where, where the product costs a lot of money. So think about what bigger, cooler thing you're enabling, and try to think about how you can help people become badass at that. And it can even be very loosely related to the actual thing that you're selling you're still helping people become badass. So imagine, I'm not going to have you do this now, but this is what I would like you to imagine. And in fact, when we work with new authors, the first thing we have them do before we tell them anything is we have them write their ideal Amazon review. And then we immediately start deducting points every time it says anything great about the author or the book. And they really only get points if the person writing the review is talking about themselves in some way, first person language. They're saying, you know, I was able to do this, or I now can understand this, if they're talking about what was enabled. Now, obviously, people who have that feeling because you've enabled something, they are going to be saying, oh my god, this is a great book. But that's not the point. The point is, think about what you really want people to say about themselves. And then the next question is, would you design things differently if that was your goal, if that's what you were responsible for? And so far, we have found nobody who has said, nope, nothing would change. Now, they might initially think that, but once they actually start looking at their features and really putting them to the test, so what would you do differently if you were responsible for this? Because the only thing that matters is here. The clicking, the swiping, the whatever gestures they're doing. This is what matters. But normally, we're designing everything around, for example, the user experience, which is while they're actually involved with the thing. And that is not what matters. Because we want people to be having conversations afterwards. And they're going to have conversations not because your user experience was amazing, but because you enabled something as a result of that experience. And so we're not just designing for our own users. We're really designing for our users' users. And you can substitute the word audience, followers, friends, colleagues, peers, whatever it is. These are the people we're designing for, which again is exactly what um, you know, Tim Ferriss is doing. Right? He's making his users more interesting to their users, which could be the people that they're having a dinner party with. That's who we're designing for. So we're always asking, how can I get more comments on my blog? How can I get more likes? How can I get more? We should be asking, how can I get my user more comments on his blog? How can I get my user more likes? How can I get my whatever it is? How can you make them more interesting at work, more interesting at a dinner party? 
So if we enable that, then we are designing so that they're not impressed with us, they're not impressed with our tool, they're impressed with themselves, and other people are impressed with the result of their work. And then we get something like this. This is even better than word of mouth. This is word of obvious. This is where they don't even have to talk. They don't even have to tell anyone. Now, when I, I used to teach an interactive and new media design class at UCLA, and this is also the first exercise that I had my students do, is you, you imagine you know, that you have your full tracking and surveillance package, which now is kind of creepy because at the time I did this, you couldn't actually do this, but now you can. Um, you imagine that you've you know, attached your tracking devices to a user, and you could watch everything they do. And I'm not saying this because you're going to use that data. That's, it was, this is not the idea. The idea is not for real. Um, I have to say that now. The idea is you could go through a thought exercise to imagine what would you hear them say. And if you describe to yourself, what do they do after they finish interacting with your product? What do they show for it? What do they have in their hands? What do they see? What do they just email? What do they just post? At what kind of conversations are they having? We have to look at desirability as a side effect of enabling them. And now, finally, the science. And yes, there is science. So um, just a quick look at what badass is. Well, now, many of you know that this is what I used to say about why it was good to have passionate users and to enable people, because being better is better. But it's actually much better to be really, really, really good. That's even better than better. So badass, and because there's a science around actually becoming really amazingly good, this is what we're going to go for. Even if you get your users only partway up that curve, just the fact that you're thinking in terms of taking them up that curve is important. And the further they go, the more robust, the more fault tolerant, the more likely they are to upgrade, the more likely they are to get your more expensive versions of your products. All of the good things happen. So, but again, it's not pseudo badass. It's not like a boss, right? It's the boss. So high resolution um, is one of the things that you find when people are incredibly good at something. They have very high resolution, not just knowledge and perception, but skills. They have richer, deeper experiences around that thing, richer, deeper conversations, ultra high resolution, super HD, right? So, you know, uh, to some of us, this might be what the night sky looks like. To someone who actually has more knowledge about astronomy, they see more. Pretty soon, they're even more involved. They're buying more apps around it. Next thing you know, they're actually making their own apps around it. Subtlety feels like a superpower. None of you would be in this room if there weren't at least one or two things that you have high resolution for. So subtlety feels like a superpower, but it can also be kryptonite. I'm just going to let you look at that for a moment. OK, we can count off the designers. But So if you don't get this, you'll have to have a designer show you. This is on XKCD. And this, if you hover over the, this comic, of course, this is what the artist actually says. This is so awesome. So um, I just love the idea of really if you hate someone. OK, so badass equals expertise. Now, because there's a science of expertise, and I mean deep expertise, so, so, and, and there's a rich History, in large part thanks to this K. Anders Ericsson, who has done, but, but it goes back for like 50 years, really intense study of what is expertise and, more importantly, how is it developed? But in order to talk about that and have a science around it that was measurable and peer-reviewable, it had to be clean and crisp definition. Because we always use the word expert in a really poor way, like, oh, he's expert at that, or, oh, uh, I'm a social media expert, right? What does that mean? Well, usually it means nothing. So. Um, means they're good on social media. So given a representative task, experts perform in a superior way more reliably. It's really crucial to get that definition into your brain because for your, people who are you know, masters or experts or the best at the bigger context that you're going to help people with, it means that they're able to perform more consistently in a more superior way. And it's not against experts versus novices, right? That's not really the interesting question. The interesting question is, what makes these people really expert versus these other people who've had the same amount of experience? That's where it gets interesting, because we know that it's not about time. So reliably superior performance, that's what badass is. Now, 
If you do some crazy you know, stunt and people go, oh my god, that was so badass, right? That's not actual badass. And I didn't know it was in 3D, too. I didn't see that one. Um, so that's jackass, not badass, right? One brilliant thing, one brilliant move, one brilliant idea that does not make them an expert, doesn't make them, it doesn't make them badass. It might be actually truly a brilliant thing, but it's consistent, repeatable, reliable, better performance. That's what expertise is because now we have a way to study that. And, and obviously one of the first things that they studied was chess because it was so clean and measurable. So given a position on the board, you know, the, the chess expert or the chess master makes a better decision, right? Given a patient with these symptoms, the better expert physician figures out uh, what the problem is in a better, more reliable way. Given a multi-track music performance, the guys back there on their big-ass mixing board are making better choices. Given this half pipe, um, given this theme, I just, I love this guy, so I always have to put it in here. Andy Riley, who is, um, draws these cartoons, right? So imagine if your theme is bunny suicide, right? Even a lot of good comics or cartoonists might be able to come up with one or two, right? But this guy repeatedly, reliably came up with three volumes now just of bunny suicides, right? This guy is an absolute expert at bunny suicide. <laughs> because he can do it over and over and over. I won't go there. Um, so these are the kinds of things, right? An expert will do those more repeatedly, more reliably. And this is the most interesting part, because it doesn't matter if it's athletics, or music, or doing business forecasting, or being a physician, or whatever it is. They find deep similarities in the way that people become really effing good at something. And these are the big three myths. Many of you have heard about these before, or some of you have heard me talk about this before. These are huge myths, and they're damaging myths because any time that we spend investing resources in these ideas is taking away from what might really be happening. So yes, experts do know more. So the idea is we'll just push knowledge into other people, and then they'll be better, and that doesn't happen. And we also know, and you all know this, because you have all worked with coworkers who've had years of experience, and it did not make them any better. So experts are not what they know, they are what they actually do. In fact, as I was walking into this room this morning, um, somebody said, you know, the amazing thing about this conference is that these people, they're actually doing. They're not just talking about it, these people are doing things. And so that's really important. Now, there is badass research. They don't call it badass, they should, but they don't. But these two books are representative, and I'm not necessarily recommending them unless you are really interested in reading all the research papers. This is, these books are a good start of where the research is. These two actually um, apply. And, and again, this is about the whole 10,000 hours thing. How many of you have heard about the whole 10,000 hours rule, right? Well, most people don't realize that the 10,000 hours is not about 10,000 hours, like 10,000 hours of doing it. It's about 10,000 hours of doing a very specific type of thing. And so these books both help point the way toward what those things are. But this is what we know. That becoming badass, or where you find badass, I mean really badass, you find these three things. You find models, and by models I mean examples of what really good is. We have edge practice, which you may know under the name deliberate practice, which is a very misleading term, which is why I'm now just only loosely and casually referring to it as edge practice because it helps point to the right thing. I'll talk about that in a second. And they have forward flow. They manage to keep going no matter what, even when things get difficult. So we need all three of these things. Now, you don't have to write any of this down. If you're interested, I'll make sure that these get posted on the blog or something, these references, if you're not familiar with them. But for models, both of those, both self-determination theory, which is the leading theory of motivation right now, and the, um, the, the the guy who is the man on uh, heading up the research on expertise. Um, models, it's talked about there, edge practice. And then also forward flow is really about self-determination theory. But there are also popular summaries of the underlying research. And uh, this is one of the reasons I was really excited that Dan Pink is going to be here um, tomorrow, because he's really written what I think is the absolute best summary of self-determination theory in the book Drive. And in fact, if you haven't seen it, just even going and watching his TED talk, 
gives you a really good picture. And, and everyone, absolutely everyone who's ever going to consider making anything that anyone else will ever use or do needs to see that talk and, and potentially read the book. But there's also a summary of a lot of the, the true deep um, expertise research, and that's this sort of popular book, The Talent Code. Now, I, I don't find it as, um, as sciencey as the Dan Pink book, but it, it's a great summary overview because to pull the summary from all these different research papers is, is, takes a long time. I happen to have a long time, so it was okay. But the talent code actually gives you a lot of really good steps. So if you had those two books, you would do a lot for helping enable users, employees, students, whatever it is. So those two books. So here's now the mapping of these three things to these books. Now there's more. There's more to this, but this is a great 80-20 start. So, but step zero is we have to define badass for the thing that we want our users to try to become badass at. So assuming that you have the bigger meaningful context, which remember is generally not your tool, it's, it's the context in which your tool exists. So you might start by just writing out a description. So given that the definition of an expert, a real true expert is, you know, given this representative task, an expert would perform better. So if you just start by playing around with that, and you might come up with ideas that in, in the beginning are gonna be very abstract, and eventually you're gonna to wanna to make them more concrete. So for example, what does best mean, right? You'd have to define what best means. You might even have to define what maintainable means. But this is a great exercise to have people, especially people who are working on product design or user experience. So now that you know that, that a badass or an expert is someone who can make these you know, reliable, uh, reliable choices and you've defined what those are for your thing, now you just have to find experts in that thing and figure out how they do it, right? No problem, that should be a piece of cake. But you all know that and this is of course known as the curse of expertise, but I'm gonna call it the curse of badass because I just like saying badass. Um, this is what happens. And all of you are probably an expert at at least one thing where you actually don't know how you do it. You may guess, you may tell yourself stories, but you really don't know. And of course, this is incredibly unhelpful. Now, a long time ago, in the early artificial intelligence days, both my husband and I worked as knowledge engineers, where our job was to actually suck expertise out of, the knowledge, uh, out of a person who had the knowledge and represent it in software. And, um, you know, we hated people who said this, even though this is true. Or worse, right? They don't want to be helpful because, you know, you're an idiot if you don't actually see it. They don't remember that there was a time when they didn't see it. So they either forgot or they just never knew. Experts, people who truly make these more reliable choices in a superior way, they have deep intuition. And we know a little bit about how that happens, but it's almost impossible to teach because it's very hard to uh, to introspect, you can't find it. They just know. How do they just know? So the brain is able to do things without having a conversation with you about it. And in fact, if you have the conversation, right, you're probably going to mess it up. And this is a problem. So the other problem is that if you ask an expert, right, they will go, well, I just know. But then if you say, all right, now can you help us teach these other people what you know? They will assume that the person has to know about 10 million things before they can even try anything. So there's this huge gap between what people actually need to know to start doing something in a reliable way and what we think they have to know. And the longer we spend trying to give them knowledge and theory and background and declarative and procedural facts, the more we're interrupting the chance for them to get really good. So if you could do only one thing for your users to make them badass, you wanna provide repeated exposure to examples of what really good looks like. And now good might be a result, right? If it's photographers, it's pretty easy because we have all these books where we can just flip through them and look at great examples of photos and then it tells you what they did to get that photo and what their settings were. And, but it's the high quantity of high quality that matters. It's not just showing one example, it's showing lots and lots and lots of examples. Um, repeated exposure, and in fact, this is one of the things that came out of the talent code. When he researched places where people were really, really, really good at something, they would literally stare 
at people who are really, really good. And in fact, one of the biggest problems we have today is that we all spend way too much time practicing being kind of crappy or mediocre. And we spend most of our time being exposed to people who are also kind of crappy or mediocre at the thing we do. And we know that practice does not make perfect, right? The real phrase is perfect practice, which will define what that is, makes perfect. But the big problem is that practice does make permanent. So the more exposure you have to examples of mediocre or to actually doing mediocre stuff, right, the more likely that is to get burned in. And that's a big problem. So we need to jump people ahead by giving them lots of exposure to really good, whatever it is, whether it's a process, whether it's the results of that process, whatever it is. But we keep trying to push knowledge in when our brains don't actually work well that way. Because we don't acquire perceptual knowledge that way. And perceptual knowledge turns out to be the most important thing for even surprisingly uh, things that we would think of it as skill, like with you know, sports or something like that. But even for things like math. right? So we need to get our brain out of the way. Now, I don't want you to do this now. but. If you have not seen this Alan Kay video, which is ancient, um, and I think if you Google, don't do it now, doing with symbols and Alan Kay, you will get to a series of videos that are really, I think, the most profound thing I may have ever seen on education. It's supposed to be the history of computer science, but it is brilliant. One of the things they show in there is the guy, Tim Galway, who, if any of you heard of Tim Galway or read like the inner game of skiing or the inner game of tennis or the inner game of golf. So the inner game, the inner game of tennis, which I actually recommend for anyone teaching anyone anything, is amazing. People didn't take him serious in the 60s because he sort of ascribed all this stuff to like, I don't know, mystical guru processes, right? But it turns out, and this is why Alan Kay, who again is one of, you know, one of the best scientists of our day, said this guy was really onto something. And then years later, you know, neuroscientists finally did prove that there was a reason why these results were happening. Part of it had to do with mirror neurons. But it's worth watching what he does. And what he does is talk about how we have to get the brain out of the way, so the brain, or, or the parts of the brain that are talking, so that the parts of the brain that are much better at really learning in a deep way can just get on with their work. This is the most extreme example. If any of you heard about the chicken sexing studies, there's, there's even, I think, some articles comparing chicken sexing to computer programming. But it's because this is, a, this is the, probably the most extreme example of where people can become experts at something without ever going through a step of learning it or even knowing what they do. It's, again, the most extreme. And apparently, I don't know this, but apparently chicken sexing, which is determining whether it's male or female when it's you know, just born, is really, really difficult. So, but they find people who become experts at it, they don't know how they do it, and they're not able to teach anyone how to do it. But what they figured out is that if the expert stands next to someone and the person just picks up, a, who wants to learn, the person picks up the chick and goes, I don't know, male, puts it over here. I don't know, female, puts it over here. And the expert keeps giving them feedback, yes, no, yes, no. The person learns quite quickly to be an actual expert and they never are able to say what changed. They just are better, and nobody can figure it out. So this is a really powerful way of thinking about how we actually do get better at something. So if you can only do one thing, provide examples of what good looks like, as many as you can. Now, um, that, and this is another problem for communities, right? Usually when we have support communities, we, we want people to spend a lot of time with other people that are struggling, and that's good, but without lots and lots and lots of good examples of good. And now, what, how, the level that we expose people to what good looks like of course, it's not meaningful if, it's, if the level of expertise is so advanced and so subtle that they have no way of even knowing what they're looking at. But as we've seen with the chicken sexing, sometimes even if they don't know what they're looking at, enough exposure, the patterns start to emerge in their brain. But if you could do two things, you would then add these deliberate practice exercises. And since there's a lot of research about how to design those, I won't go into the details because it's very easy to find good research and good examples of how to do this for any domain. But the main clue for a deliberate practice exercise, which is not a tutorial, by the way. Tutorials are not deliberate practice. They can be, but they're often not. So a deliberate practice exercise is something designed to build a skill within one to three sessions. Now, it's not always one to three, but that's an easy way to think of it. <coughs> or like I like to think, if you can help people go from like 
maybe totally unreliable at this thing to 85 to 90% reliable at the thing within 45 minutes, that's another great metric. Because that forces you to think about the granularity of that skill. So if somebody, if within three days or three practice sessions, they can't really become more reliable, the skill was not at the right chunk. It wasn't at their level. This is the way people become really good at anything. They are doing that. The 10,000 hours is about that. And that is painful work. Um, so play the short musical passage with no mistakes at this key, right? And how short it is is going to be determined by, well, could you do this within one to three practice sessions? If you can't, then the part we were asking you to do or the speed was too long, and we need to change the exercise. So having a high quantity of those kinds of skill, that's how skill is built, not just keep doing it and hope that you get better. And the third thing, if you could do nothing else, you would add a clear, believable path. And in fact, the martial arts is a great place to study how you both motivate and build skill in people, because they've been doing an amazing job at sustaining people. And in fact, martial arts seems to be tied to people having a much higher percentage, uh, or a much higher chance of continuing with an exercise program because they're connected to martial arts versus any other fitness program. And one of the things they have, of course, now this is, I don't really study martial arts. Apparently, this is just after you're already a black belt, right? These are the degrees of black belt. And I had not realized that just getting the basics down, that's what they consider. Now you're a black belt. You got the basics down, right? Now we go from here. But it's telling you what is important at what level. So it's like a motivational GPS. People need to know what's the map to getting better at this and where am I on the map? Those two things are almost always missing. In a lot of domains, no one has ever even bothered to suggest a map. So think about that. But here's the most important thing that's driving all of that. And this is, a, this is a, uh, I think, a design idea or a point of view based on science um, that, that's probably had the biggest change on the things that I do, especially even in the last year. Now, a lot of you will be familiar with this experiment. So I'm not going to actually have you do the experiment, but I'm going to imagine that you are. Imagine that I took this half of the room, and I had you guys do a little memory experiment, and you were going to remember two numbers. This group, I'm going to have them remember seven numbers. So you guys are going to have a little experiment. You remember two numbers, little experiment, and you're going to remember seven numbers. And again, I'm sure a lot of you have read about this research. Now, imagine that the experiment is over, but of course it's never over because the experimenters are always lying about that. They're like, okay, cool, you're done. You did the experiment. Now walk down the hall and they'll process you. Now you guys walk down the hall. You guys walk down the hall. You walk into a room for processing after the experiment is supposed to be over. And there's a table set up with cake and fruit. Here's the freaky and crucial thing. You guys had two numbers, right? You're looking kind of lean and svelte, right? You guys, cake eaters. Far more likely to choose the cake if you had a, a cognitive task that required you to, to, to stress to the seven numbers versus the two numbers. You guys were like, I'm good with the fruit. You guys are like, oh, cake. This is unbelievable. It took them a long time to realize what was happening because it seemed so bizarre. But what happened is willpower and focus and concentration and working on a problem-solving task, they're all coming from the same pool of cognitive resources. More significantly, it's really a scarce resource that's very easily depleted. And it's not just about glucose in the brain, although it does have a lot to do with that. But this idea of cognitive resources being so easily depleted and so applicable to so many things that, that, it's this, this, that the same pool of cognitive resources is holding all these different things means that we should be managing cognitive leaks everywhere we can. Because every place it leaks out, we're, we're not just hurting their ability to move forward with what we're asking them to do, but we're also hurting their life. So all of these things, even just choices, right? So that's why you know, the, the stuff that you're most likely to be unable to resist is at the end of your shopping experience, right by the you know, right by the checkout cart. It's not because they think you got hungry walking around the store. It's because you were so depleted 
cognitively by having to make choices that by the time you get there, no more cognitive resources for choices, which means no more cognitive resources for willpower. And they've even shown it in dogs, right? So you take a dog, how many of you have dogs? Okay, so you take a dog, you put the dog in the crate for five minutes, and you have another dog, and he's sitting outside the crate for five minutes, and you ask this dog to sit, and it, which he has no problem with, it's a very obedient dog, sit for five minutes. This one just chills in his crate for five minutes. Then you let them out. Then you give them the treat puzzle, they call it a puzzle, but you know, it's where they, it's hard to get the treat out of the little ball, whatever it is. This dog, who had to sit for five minutes, just gives up much faster than the one who was relaxing in his crate. This dog just gives up, he actually can't do it, even though he really wants the treat. So just being obedient, just sitting there for five minutes, having self-control, drained his ability to problem solve, even for something he wanted. So what does this mean? Just think about this. And this is actually true, right? I mean, this is this what's really happening. So if you, now, this doesn't mean that you should, of course, make your product just incredibly easy. It just means that when people are draining their cognitive resources, that drain is taking them away from other things they would be able to do. And they need those resources. So becoming badass, right, becoming really amazing at something, remember, deliberate practice, right, is really difficult. It's going to drain resources like, like crazy. It doesn't work if it's not draining resources. It's going to be the biggest drain of all because it should not be pleasant or fun, right? If you're having fun, if you're enjoying doing something, you're not getting better at it. You're just doing it more. So you need to actually be pushing, and your users need to be pushing their, their boundaries, their edges all the time to be able to get better. So you should always be asking, well, where can we, assuming that we can't make this a fruit thing because it's where the hard stuff really just is, how can we make these other areas as sort of fruit choosy as we can to reduce their cognitive resources? so that we can reduce leaks, so that they can use those resources to get better. Now, we're gonna to try to reduce them whenever we can, but I just like to think of it as, this is a terrible name, of course, so no, no one will ever use this word, but practice cognitive resource-driven design. If you think about everything from a cognitive resources perspective, then when are you draining resources, and when are you allowing those resources to refill? Usually, we're, we're draining their resources on things that really are not the important thing at all, which, of course, everyone who's doing good UI knows this already. Being overwhelmed with choices is a leak, a huge leak. This we now know for sure, that if you're faced with just a lot of choices, even though choice is empowering, even if every choice makes sense, none of it is confusing, just the overwhelming number of choices. So we know that, of course, the great power of filter and defaults, now we know that having more defaults and filters might cause someone to lose a little weight, which is badass. Okay, so trying to figure out which parts of your API matter. I mean, one of the things that experts are so great at, and especially like experts who are acting as mentors, is they can just tell you, I know the book has these 10,000 things in it, or I know this API is huge, but just let that go, because none of this crap matters. What really matters is, right, there is something for which you are an expert where you know something that almost nobody else does, where you know the real heart of it is not where everyone else is looking. It's actually just this, right? And then later you might reach a new level of expertise where you go, actually, that wasn't it either. It's actually this thing over here. The more you can point people to what really matters instead of offering them all these you know, possibilities. So your job is to cut through that. But there are cognitive resource hacks. So. Um, one of them, uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you have read Donald Norman's work from way back when, but this idea of knowledge in the world versus in the head, right? Anything that you can, and I think his main point on that was whenever you can offload something into the world it's, and out of their head, it's reducing their cognitive resource drain. So, you know, something in the UI that has a label, right? Or a button that's not modal where it doesn't behave different ways at different times. It's just, this is what it does, right? So the knowledge for what that thing does is in the world. It doesn't have to be in their head. Anytime you do that, you're freeing up cognitive resources for them to do cooler things. But this one, this is so awesome. Okay, this, um, and if you haven't seen the, these studies, you can actually Google this too later. Um, 
this idea of enclosed cognition, because it's really powerful. Um, and, it, and there's a lot of things that you could do with this. So it's a, it's a little cute idea to like raise your IQ or raise your capability just by something that you wear. So they took a group of people and they gave them this white lab coat-y thing, right? And they said, okay, you guys, we're giving you this coat to wear and it's the, it's the coat that, um, you know, that the scientists wear in the lab. Then this group over here, they said, okay, you guys, they actually gave you the same coat, but they said, oh yeah, this is the painter's smock. This is what the, you know, this is what the artists wear in the studio next door, whatever it is. Then they gave you some tests, right? Same coat. If you believed that you were wearing the scientist's coat, you scored higher than your default would have been on the technical things. Not so good at the creative tasks. You guys, on the other hand, kind of sucked at the engineering and, and sciencey tasks, but you rocked the creative tasks just by putting on the frickin' coat. So this matters. And you know, it, it's just all part of what they're discovering about these strange ways that the brain does things without us being actually consciously aware of it or trying to influence it. But there's an even more bizarre and powerful one. And in fact, I'm gonna do it right now. I'm gonna make you instantly more badass. Instantly, and, and, and I mean this actually, truly, legitimately, and if we had you know, needles and syringes and lab gear, I could prove it. So um, here's what you're gonna do. It's the only activity I'm gonna ask you to do, so it's really easy. But you are gonna have to stand up in just a second, so let's clear the decks. What you're gonna do without hitting the person next to you is I want you to just, okay, well go ahead, stand up. Again, this will be really easy. Just don't hit the person next to you. I want you to adopt a superhero stance, right? Be badass, right? So put your arms out, you know, you know, or Wonder Woman. Well, now I said Wonder Woman, so now you're not gonna do it, but um, Wonder Guy or something. Superhero stance, right? Badass stance. Be open, be big. All right, now sit back down. If, if we had the needles and the gear, right, we could prove that I just this is real, just increased your testosterone, and lowered your cortisol. Now, don't go like this, because that will immediately reduce your testosterone and raise your cortisol. So we know this to be true. We can do it with animals, we can do it with humans. We can instantly make you more alpha, which again, is more badass, because if you are less stressed, it's not the having more testosterone, not that I have anything against testosterone, it's, um, it's when you have lowered your cortisol, that means you are freeing up more resources because you're not stressed. <laughs> and so now you can focus in a more broad way. So it's a really good space to be in. So think about that, clothes, posture, all these things. You can make people instantly badass. So now to wrap up, remember this is what we're going for. This is what we want more than anything and we wanna figure out how to make that happen. This is sort of the summary of the three main things that are happening where true badass exists, and these are things that you can, and when I say provide, I mean you could just provide a pointer, right? You can say, oh, this site over here has lots of stuff that will help you be good at this, right? Anything that you can do. So it doesn't necessarily mean you have to build these things, because chances are you may not have very much about helping people with your tool, but you may be able to find a great set of community and resources for, to help people get better at the real thing. So think from a cognitive resources perspective. You don't want to be the app that makes people fat. Now, we have this idea that the customer still isn't going to take a bullet for us, right? Because they're never truly loyal to us, because that would be actually really dysfunctional and unhealthy, right? But, but, there is a but, right? Because people are loyal to themselves and those they care about, not you, the brand, if you do this, it was a huge win for everybody, right? Then you get this. And then, you know, <sighs> we're getting closer. I'm gonna end how I always end because this is really meaningful to me to be here with all of you because what we are doing, all of us, we are developing things that help increase the resolution of the actual world. We are upgrading 
the real world by giving people a higher resolution for their experiences. And I am really honored to be part of that. So um, go you and have a great rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you, guys.